Hi there, and we're back. Welcome to another Dishcast. Three years in now of the Dish, the weekly Dish, and we're doing great. Thank you for all your support. If you do want to subscribe, please do. We 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 put these these podcasts out largely for free, and we'd love your support, especially if you want to listen to the entire thing. Today we have an old. Particularly a writer I've always particularly enjoyed reading. He's a political journalist. His name is Matt Lewis, and he's been a senior contributor for The Daily Caller and a columnist for AOL's Politics Daily, and he's currently a senior columnist at The Daily Beast, the old haunt of the dish. He also hosts his own podcast and YouTube show, Matt Lewis and the News. So today, though, we're going to talk about his new book, which is just out, and it's called Filthy Rich Politicians. The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashing In on America. Sounds like a very virulent populist tome. Turns out not to be quite like that, but, but the spirit is well appreciated in this corner. And I just to give you a heads up, coming up on the Dishcast, we have Lee Fang on the tensions within the left that's now going on. We have Josh Barrow defending Joe Biden to the nth degree, and we'll have a go at it. And maybe he will also get involved in talking about how he despises Europeans and Europe and why we all need to improve our cooking skills. And then Michael Moynihan, because he's Michael Moynihan, and I miss him, and we, he hasn't been on for a year. And there's no one I like kibitzing about politics with more than Michael. He's hilarious. He's also on the, the fifth column, that great podcast. Matt, welcome. Nice to meet you. Well, nice to see you again. How are you? Andrew, always a pleasure. Good to see you. I'm going to start with a question that actually is kind of related to the book. You did not grow up filthy rich. By the way, where's that expression come from? Filthy rich. Do you know? That No, that's a great question. Uh, you I would think that some... You would think that someone who wrote a book, a book with the title might research that? I have no idea. Well, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's very, evocative. It's very evocative, and they are <laughs> filthy rich, and astonishingly so by most people's standards. So tell me where you grew up and uh, who you, what your parents did and your family life, if you as, as much or as little as you want to tell us. I'm from a little place called Wolfsville, Maryland, which is about seven miles from Camp David, the presidential retreat. And my dad was a prison guard in Hagerstown, Maryland, for about 30 years. A prison guard? My mom, guard. a prison guard. I could tell you stories about that. I mean- My granddad the, was one of those. The politically correct term is correctional officer. But yeah, he was a prison guard. He voluntarily went to prison for 30 years so I could get paid to talk about politics. So it was a, you know, it was a, it was a sacrifice. And my, my mom was a homemaker, although she did interestingly do a stint- working in Smithsburg, Maryland for a Doubleday book company, a small branch office where she did everything from work as a receptionist to working as a proofreader, where she would just literally read books out loud to someone else. And, I, and, it, and it may be that I got the bug from her that way. Hmm. But mostly it was a really rural experience. When I was in elementary school, they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? The number one answer was farmer. The number two answer was truck driver. 
that's like an 18 wheeler, by the way, like a, you're driving a big rig. I wanted to play for the Baltimore Orioles. I was a little bit different. And just, this, <laughs> this is a weird, funny personal story about that. We had, when I was in high school too, we were, we were, we were asked to actually do something similar to that, which is write our own obituaries in the future. And, and yes, everyone in my class was similar. It was like, I want to be a, an athlete. I want to be a, a rugby player. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a spaceman. And then it came to me <laughs> and they read out my essay. The teacher read out my essay and the essay began with the words, today the nation mourned. <laughs> I, I always had this fantasy that one day I was going to be Churchill or somebody and it didn't quite happen. But anyway, so you wanted to be in the Orioles. I did. I mean, you got to realize they won when I was nine years old, they won the World Series. So that locks you in. And I was, you know, sort of a long suffering fan ever since. And luckily right now they're doing amazing. I don't want to jinx it, but that locked me into fandom. But I was a little different from most of my classmates who, you know, I had these delusions of grandeur, whereas they wanted, they were very content with, uh, with where, you know, kind of like living that existence of like being a farmer, being a truck driver. And, and I think that, that, so I, I'm sort of this conflicted person. And even when we look at this book, Filthy Rich Politicians, and I think of how my background and my experience sort of informs it, I think once again, there is something like a, of a paradox. Like on one hand, I, and I think it actually benefits the book, by the way, but like on one hand, and I live in, I live in West Virginia now as well. That's the other, the other thing. But I think on one hand, I, even though I'm not like a populist, by virtue of coming from a back, a very rural background with a lot of kind of blue collar, God fearing folk, that has given me a reverence and an appreciation for for those folks that that some of my colleagues from journalism actually may not share, may not have. On the other hand, growing up in a Christian conservative background, which we took very seriously, I was taught not to envy and also not to be a victim. The Christianity I grew up with was envy is bad, greed, envy, avarice, those things are bad. But also the politics I grew up with was victimhood is bad. Don't be a victim and don't claim victimhood status. And so all of these weird things have sort of combined with this book, which I think, which I hope explains and identifies with the plight of populist working class Americans without getting into, you know, the pitchforks and the lanterns and the, the, the sort of the victimhood, which I, which I don't like. What do you think growing up in that gives you as a journalist that, for example, many other contemporary journalists don't have? I mean, is it a sense that, that you have some sort of clue as to how ordinary people might be feeling and thinking because you kind of grew up in that climate and that sticks with you? It's, it's, that's, that's certainly the case with me. I, I, I grew up in, a, in not a very, I mean, not a very wealthy family and I, I love them and I love the people I went to high school with and I went to elementary school with and many of them still live in the hometown I grew up in. And I've always tried to keep them in my head when I'm thinking, even though they're English, so obviously have very little in common in some ways with the American working or low middle classes. And, but at the same time, they've had a similar wave of, of, of alienation from their own country, 
from the own elites that are running their country in a way that I think was helpful to me as a journalist growing up, getting older as I as these forces began to assemble and 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 marshal and I didn't regard them as inherently problematic exactly no I think we're all a product to some degree of our background and our experience and that will help form your worldview. It's actually one of the reasons I think it's so problematic that so many members of Congress are so different than us. So many politicians do not share the same experience that we have. And I think that it's a disconnect. I'm not saying that you can't, You can, of course you could be rich and also and be compassionate and empathetic and identify with the plight of, of others. Like you could, but it's hard. There's a disconnect, it's hard to. It's and also Andrew, hard to understand what it's like not to know how you're going to get through the next week within your on your paycheck. It, it to so, actually experience that level of economic insecurity kind of sears into you a kind of understanding of the world that these people have not really experienced. Absolutely, and you know, I mean, I've never been in poverty. We always had enough food on the table, and but but you know, I know what it's like to like. Am I going to make it home? Is there, are we going to run out of gas? And I've been living back in West Virginia now for about three or four years, where my wife is from, and I went to college in West Virginia. And I think it has been immensely helpful to me. I go to a local church here. You know, during the COVID pandemic, I was coaching Little League. You're just going to bump into people who are different, and you're going to make friends with people who have different backgrounds and different values. And I, I think it's really healthy for a writer. There's a huge amount of just disbelief or incomprehension at the loyalty of the people you're talking about to this particular figure, Donald J. Trump. And it, 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 it seems to be not just a, a phase, but at, at this point, uh, almost pathological support for him, love for him, devotion to this person. And when you, when you think about him, a man who has never for a second <laughs> experienced any kind of economics insecurity, who stiffs people like you, who won't pay you, even though you've done the job on time and, and very well, someone who has lived in Manhattan and in all these, these, these palaces, essentially, and treated ordinary people with contempt in many ways in terms of his financial dealings. All the things that you talked about that you value in that culture of ours, he represents the absolute opposite, and yet they worship him. I would venture to say that 99% of the people who go to the church I go to voted for Trump without reservation. However, I hasten to add Unlike my friends, you know, I have friends like Eric Erickson and, and David French who have been, I would say, harassed and menaced by Trump supporters in their community. I've had none of that experience. Now, this may just be a commentary on my lack of fame. People <laughs> just may not know who I am. But these are folks, as you know, Andrew, as you know, Andrew, these are folks, if I call them at two o'clock in the morning, with a flat tire, they will come fix my car. Yep. You know? Yep. yep. And so yep. it is a weird dichotomy. It's one of the things that, you know, the South particularly, although it's amazing how sweet people are to each other and to strangers. I mean, maybe I'm talking about white strangers, but 
But I don't think that's even totally true too. There's a there's an ethic of hospitality and of politeness and of and of and of generosity that is striking. And yet here is this figure who is cheap beyond measure, who won't give any anything to anyone, who has never, so far as I can tell, done anything charitable to any other person in his entire life, and who mocks the poor and mocks the weak, mocks the disabled, mocks mocks in many ways people who aren't rich and yet and yet they rally to him now now maybe it's because he is the rich guy who took on the rich guys and that's 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 a dynamic that's kind of interesting it's a it's a classic dynamic of the of an a, a emerging tyrant as 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 you see in political science it's what they do they're often from the elite that turn on the elite and represent the people against the elite. They don't have to be poor. They don't have to come from nowhere. In fact, they're often very wealthy. I guess one way that I might identify with these folks is I used to be a huge Rush Limbaugh fan. And I know Rush Rush and Trump are not the same person, but I started listening to Rush Limbaugh in 1988 when my dad turned me on to him. And I used to listen some days, three hours a day, five days a week. And he would just sort of keep me company mowing the lawn, driving here and there. And if Rush Limbaugh had died in 1995, 96, it would have, I would have literally felt like a member of my family died. And I think part of it's the, the, the power of radio. But I thought Rush was funny and a nice guy. And I thought it was shtick. Like some of the things he said were shtick and that he was really a good, a good guy. And, and, it turns out he probably wasn't actually, but I really kind of gave him this benefit of the doubt at the time. And I think there's some something there with Trump that the people think. There's something campy about it almost, that it, it's a kind of parody of itself. And so he's kind of winking at you at the same time and also targeting people you really don't like, <laughs> who don't yes. like you in deliciously funny ways. I mean, that's the other thing that I think is, underestimated with Trump, not that he seems, he doesn't seem to have much of a sense of humor himself. I very rarely see him laugh, although Eric Erickson was on here saying he does, but he will, he, he's able to turn a phrase that is funny to people, that, 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 that shows the absurdity of a lot of Potemkin politics, as it were. But, but let's talk about the rich that people resent, because this is true. Now, rich, the old form of rich, and let's talk about that first, the old, the kind of wealthy people you came across at the Daily Call, the people who knew everything about yachting in ways that no ordinary people would right. ever think of knowing about, <laughs> that kind of resentment is still there, but it doesn't seem to be that powerful on the right. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I think that it is, there's a, a sort of an elite person and I'm using that term loosely because I think just like the term conservative doesn't really mean anything anymore, or it means different, in fact, contradictory things. Mm-hmm. The word elite is a, semant- it's a semantics game. But look, I mean, Ted Cruz is an elitist. Oh, he's an elite. He is an elite. I mean, he is somebody who went to an Ivy League school. He is a, a, in the U.S. Senate. His wife, Heidi, is an executive at Goldman Sachs. He allegedly, according to his college roommate, wouldn't study with someone from a, quote, lesser Ivy than the one he attended. So by any normal definition, you would have to say that Ted Cruz is an elite. And yet there are a lot of 
country conservatives who probably think he's one of us. No, I think it's a shtick, but their definition of an elite would be people we don't like, you know, rich people we don't like who do not, who, who are not Republicans or, or something like that. What has happened to the Democratic Party that has led it to have such a, a leadership and a, a, a spectrum of, of, of leaders who seem to be so wealthy, I mean, in ways that are not just wealthy, but super wealthy. And people, there, there's a difference here. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which you could be prosperous and have a, a decent living. And to some extent, that was true of Biden for a very long time, not the wealthiest guy in the Senate, actually. And, and it's only recently that he seems to have earned a huge amount of money. How do you explain that shift? Because the Democrats didn't used to be that moneyed as they are now. Explain that. I, yeah, no, I think it tracks with the political reordering that we've seen. My Most of my life, the Republican Party was considered the party of the rich. And the Democratic Party, kind of going back to FDR and the New Deal and the Great Depression, was the working man's party. Except FDR, of course, super aristocrat. Um, right. The, I mean, totally. But, uh, I mean, he, he probably one of the most privileged presidents ever to exist. Same with the Kennedys. Super, yep. super rich. Not true of Clinton, who was not at all wealthy and has spent a lot of his adult life trying to get money, including his, his wife also tried to get money. So it's, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, right? I mean, in the, the, the increasing number of these people, they're not just individual characters who come from wealth and decide that they go to represent noblesse oblige. They're actually really, really increasingly wealthy elites. Who, yeah. who, who, who also signal their elitism, not just by showing their wealth, but by the language they use, the positions they take, and the, the kind of condescension they exude. Yeah. No, I think that you know, the Democratic Party has become more the party of highly educated, woke white people. Not even white, but just high, you know, woke, highly educated. We're talking about tech bros, finance bros. And I think that is a lot of it. Absolutely. And I think there's hypocrisy on both sides. I mean, in, in this book, Filthy Rich Politicians, I have one chapter called Latte Liberals. I don't have to explain that one. There's another chapter called Ivy League Populists. And I probably don't have to explain that one either. So I think both parties have a version of someone who is casting themselves as you know, Joe Sixpack, but but in reality, they are they are not. Why is this different from the past? Can you can you show that that's a shift? Well, a couple things are different from the past. First, three or four decades ago, uh, we've always had uh, presidents who were dramatically richer than the rest of us, and even U.S. senators. But until three or four decades ago. Uh, there were people in the House who were plumbers, pipe fitters, kind of working class folks in the House of Representatives. Today, more than 50 percent of members of the House of Representatives are millionaires as compared as compared with about 7 percent of the rest of us. So does so, millionaire mean earns a million a year or has a net worth of a million dollars? So. Because lawmakers are allowed to report their holdings and debts in broad ranges, it's really difficult to discern exactly their precise net worth. 
It also gets complicated because they're not required to reveal the value of their homes or even their spouse, what their spouse makes. So, and then conversely, compared to normal citizens are considered millionaires when they have, quote, investable assets of $1 million, excluding the value of real estate. Okay. So it is a little apples and oranges, but basically the average member of Congress is about 12 times richer than the average American household. And this is a phenomenon that has really started three or four decades ago. And in the last 40 years, the average the average member of Congress has doubled their net wealth, whereas most Americans have kind of been treading water when you adjust it for inflation. Do we have data on the past in which we can actually show this uh, income of, of, of members of Congress? I mean, we, you can tell us what it is now, but I wonder what it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Yeah, we do have that. What I don't know and what I, and I, what I would actually like to, to do a deeper dive into is 100 years ago what it was like. That I don't know. Now, I suspect part of the problem has to do with the fact that we have capped the House of Representatives. In other words, there's only 435 members in the House, and we've been stuck at that same number for like 100 years or something like that. I suspect if we were to uncap the House and have, I don't know, a 1,000 or 2,000 members of the House of Representatives, we would see the average net wealth decline and your average member, not only would you have a better chance of bumping into your congressman, but he or she would probably be much more like you, much more like the average Joe in terms of their net wealth. Do they start off rich and then become politicians or do they become politicians and then become rich? What's the data on this? Well, bo both, of, both of them are true. So, for example, at, at the end of my book, in the appendix, I took Business Insider ranked the top 100 members of Congress. And I, and I took the richest 25 members and did a, you know, delve into their background and their bio. And about 13, so more than half, 13 of the 25 got their wealth either from inheritance or marriage. And then... The other less, slightly less than half earned it, you know, <laughs> actually invented something, built something. There's a guy, Kevin Hearn. I don't know if you know who he is. He's he, he, interesting story. This is a guy who, who worked at a McDonald's, saved enough money to buy a McDonald's franchise. And now he's one of the richest members of Congress. So there are positive, interesting stories of that too. So, but the really corrosive thing is is not just that rich people get elected. It's when things like insider trading, for example, congressional insider trading, where they, at least there's a perception that they're trading off of things they know or access they have that we don't have. That is what I think is is the most toxic. But you use the word perception. Is it accurate? You know, like take Nancy Pelosi, for example, who seems to have just unbelievable amounts of, of, of wealth and in also share in shares in the market. I mean, people are always going to suggest that they're doing insider trading, even if they're not, even if, 
even if what they have is just simply a, a deeper awareness of the society or the economy because they have to, because they're communists, maybe they make a little better decisions. So where's the actual proof of the corruption? Let me give you a few examples, and, and you and you can tell me, and maybe the listeners can can decide for themselves. Because I don't want to accuse, you know, make any allegations here. What do you mean? Wanna... You, you have a, you have a book called <laughs> filthy, the, well, filthy Rich. You are accusing. I, I want to know. Definitely uh, Filthy Rich. I plead guilty to that. Are okay. they engaged in insider trading? Let me give you some examples, okay? okay? So in 2020, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, invests hundreds of thousands of dollars in call options on Tesla. Five weeks later, Joe Biden signs an executive order mandating that federal, state, and local fleets begin transitioning to zero emissions vehicles by 2027. As you can imagine, Andrew, the price of Tesla stock goes through the roof. Coincidence? Maybe. Fast forward one year. The very next year, 2021, Paul Pelosi invests $10, millions, $10 million worth of call options in Microsoft stock. This time, two weeks later, the U.S. Army announces that they have just made a deal with Microsoft where Microsoft will produce these reality headsets worth possibly tens of... Ten, they're augmented reality headsets worth potentially like $10 billion over the next decade. Coincidence? I don't know. I talked to, I'll tell you this. I talked to people that I know who've worked in the stock market, who who know a lot more about it than I do, and they tell me it's insider trading. But either way, I mean, here's the point I do want to make. And by the way, I can give you Republican examples too. This is a bipartisan thing. Well, I mean, it's, well, I well, just for the sake of fairness, let's name a Republican who's oh, okay. a similar similar a similar doubt about their integrity. Well, this one I think is even more disturbing because it has to do with capitalizing on a crisis. Not just making money, but capitalizing on a crisis. So during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is early on in 2020 before most Americans realized quite how bad things were going to be, right? Remember, it'll be like a miracle. It'll be gone and two weeks to slow the spread and all that. We we didn't know. We're like wiping down, you know, my groceries. I have no idea. Senator Richard Burr, who at the time was chairman of the Intelligence Committee, and as you can imagine, as chair of the Intel Committee, he's privy to lots of classified documents, classified briefings, all that jazz. So before the average American knows how bad COVID is, Senator Richard Burr dumps hundreds of thousands of dollars of stock in things like Wyndham Hotels, right? The kinds of investments that might not fare well during a shutdown or a global pandemic. Even worse, he picks up the phone and calls his brother-in-law. Within one minute of talking to Senator Richard Burr, his brother-in-law calls his broker and dumps his stock. Now, remember, Richard Burr is not telling the American public how bad it is. He's telling his brother-in-law, apparently. But guess what? Nothing happened to him. He's <laughs> perfectly fine. He's not in jail. No well, look, problem. I would say the following, because I, I remember at the time, I, I thought, shit, this is obviously going to be really bad. I thought that before other people did. I remember having to take a flight where I put a mask on long before 
the mask was mandated just because I thought, God damn it, this is real. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily. You could just be an intelligent person and to figure out we're heavily involved in hotels. This is a global pandemic. Obviously, there's going to be disruptions. Let's get rid of our stock. That's that's intelligent. Again, I don't think you're proving this stuff, Matt. I mean, no, I, well, I agree. These, these, I agree. I, I, well, then, then, then no, I, I agree that it's not. It is not dispositive. And let me tell you why I don't mind agreeing with you. In fact, agreeing with you supports my premise. Okay. Two reasons. Number one, my goal is not to put Richard Burr or Nancy Pelosi in jail. My goal is to end stock trading in Congress. Right. Why is and, that? And, I mean... and the reason, and let me, I'll just finish with this, the second point and then, then I'll shut up. Because what, earlier you said, like, well, you said it, you said something to the effect of, like, well, you said it looks like or it creates the impression or the perception. That's my concern. It doesn't matter whether these are actually examples of insider trading or not. What matters is it looks like it. And I don't care about getting even with rich people. I don't care about getting even with Richard Burr. What I care about is the fact that to the, to the average American, it looks like a swamp. That is corrosive if you love this country. So that's why we need to ban. And now you can, if you want to own mutual funds, that's fine. But, but if, if you want to serve in Congress, you should not be betting on the stock market. How would that work? You would, you would, they, would, they would all have to put all their stuff in, some, all their wealth into some kind of mutual fund that would be, that would be run independently of their, that's, you know, that, of their own judgment in the way that previous presidents have done before Donald J. Trump. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I think there would have to be allowances for allowing people to kind of wind this down, you know. This, but with maybe there's a grace period, but at but very soon, I think we should ban. And, and by the way, not just for the members of Congress, but for their spouses and their households. No stock trading. And part of my theory is, you don't have to serve in Congress, you know. But if you do then I think there is a responsibility that comes with that to, to be beyond reproach and to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. Yeah, it's just, I think it's probably quite hard on a regular income to campaign for office, to spend the amount of time that you have to spend in, in getting into office, first of all, and then staying in office without having some kind of financial security you can fall back on. Now, and you can you can see why that might be the case. In other words, I I don't begrudge people trying to get a stable source of income when they're in politics. Would every congressman have to put all their own and their spouse and family in a blind trust or something? Is that what you're suggesting? I'm going even further. I'm saying, you know, wind it down. You can have mutual funds, but I don't want a blind trust where the blind trust is investing in inter- the energy sector and. You know, hotels. Now, that is. Let me let me let me let me point this to you. And 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 the richy filthy the filthy rich people. Sorry, the (laughs) filthy people. The filthy rich people should be the most targeted and the most examined. And yet, let's take two characters here. Let's take Hunter Biden and Jared Kushner, two people who are clearly sons of presidents. It seems to me, and again, this is from the populist point of view. Here you have a president like Trump, who is arguably the most corrupt one has ever seen. The, 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 the family making money off the Saudis. I mean, like serious hmm. money yeah. to bail them out. The, the endless amount of grift involved here. 
the use of his office to 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 uh, give that allure or a loser like Hunter Biden. What's that message saying? My dad's in the room. I need to get I need to get this money now or I'm or things could get iffy for you. OK, so but the Democrats, they don't care about Hunter Biden at all. Yeah. The, the Republicans, they don't care about Jared Kushner at all. They, yeah. If anything, they're egging them on. So this idea that populism is essentially going to destabilize both parties, it doesn't seem right. It seems in some ways, if you're in the right party, no one cares. Well, I, look, I, I think it's an interesting psychological thing that's happening, which is that, you know, in, in the book, I study people who are attacked because they're rich, right? So like Daniel Goldman, who's a newly elected congressman from New York, who's filthy rich, his his liberal primary opponents attacked him for you know being rich, trying to buy the race. It didn't matter. It did not matter at all. Senator John Hoven from North Dakota, his his general election opponent attacked him because in the decade or so that he's been in the U.S. Senate, his wealth his net wealth has doubled. And Don Beyer from Northern Virginia, he's a car dealer. A lot of these guys are car dealers. All of them got PPP loans for what that's worth. All the car dealers. His his primary, he's a Democrat. His primary opponent attacked him for being rich. It 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 doesn't work. And it especially doesn't work in general elections because, as you've noted, we have this sort of polarized society where everyone is willing to overlook everything, including character issues, to vote for their guy or their gal. Even George Santos, this is a very interesting thing, I think, about George Santos. Mm -hmm. If you look at all the things he lied about or pretended, and most things he pretended to be like a victim or part of a, a of, of a underprivileged sort of put upon group, you know. But the one thing when it came to class and wealth, he actually exaggerated his status in terms of his educational attainment and his and his wealth. So it is it, it sort of goes against the premise of my book, which is to say being rich in elections, it, it does not hurt you at the ballot box to be rich. In fact, quite the opposite. It's more likely to hurt you to not be rich at the ballot box. I think that simultaneously, while that is true, like while Democrats don't care about Hunter Biden's sins and while Republicans don't care about Jared Kushner's sins, I do think that undergirding this entire thing is a sense that the game is rigged and that it's that it I think part of it is an apathy. It's not outrage. They're not outraged anymore. In fact, there's an apathy. There's a sense that this just get used to it. This is what to expect. I think that is in, that is incredibly corrosive and dangerous, actually worse than if people were outraged. Let me suggest this, that that in fact, what's happened over the last 50 or so years is that economically, because of technology, because of free trade, because of a whole bunch of other factors, the cognitively advanced, the people with cognitive advantages have done better than ever before. In other words, the nerds actually started winning in the 90s onwards. And the people who beat them up, who had more earthy, gritty, labor-based jobs have, have felt fallen behind. That's a global phenomenon. It's everywhere across the Western world. 
And thereby, you know, the, the value of an education of a degree also went up dramatically. Also, you had the, the impact of generations of, of educational testing, which brought a lot of the smart kids out of their neighborhoods and their states into colleges that were able then, who didn't go back to where they were from. And so you do create, and we have created, independently of politics, a very prosperous upper class. And politicians have to engage that. And, and they also have to be around it. The sheer, the, the, the capacity to have to, the, the need to go and talk to donors all the time, these incredibly wealthy people. And it's kind of hard, is it not, for that not to rub off on you? I think of the, I think of the Obamas, you know, and I, I have to say every time I see him hmm. on a yacht with some bunch of rich people, it, my heart sinks a little bit. Whenever I see that they got, I don't know how many millions from this Netflix deal that they got, my heart sinks a little bit just because it just means that there's another one that we've lost to this, yeah. this super elite who, who di obviously didn't come from huge wealth at all. And so it does seem there's something in the atmosphere more generally economically and culturally that makes it very hard to be dealing with elites, which is you're going to have to in Congress. They're powerful. You've got to deal with them. You've got to raise funds as to not be sort of co-opted by the culture of those elites and the culture of money. It's hard to keep up. I think, of the, really I think, of, I think of Hillary, for example, desperate to make money. All, I mean, all the desperate things they did in the 80s. <laughs> and <laughs> Cattle futures. All that stuff. <laughs> it was, when you look back, though, it's kind of pathetic, really. Yeah. It wasn't that much money. They, they needed it to get by. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying if, if, in fact, some of this is structural, and if, in fact, it doesn't matter at the tribal politic partisan, it's, it's not that important, except – as you point out, this sense that somehow the country is run by people who don't understand us at all. And that sense really matters, right? And so that's why, and let me, let me say, as someone who's a Christian, I'm sure I'm a very flawed Christian, but a Christian and a, a conservative, but also probably a flawed conservative, I do not believe we could fix anything, right? I, I don't believe in the perfectibility of man. I believe we live in a fallen world. And I believe that it is, in, you know, people want power, people want money, and that is human nature. And we will not change that. Now, I call for reforms in the book. We've talked about the insider trading. Uh, you know, there's moratorium on the revolving let's door. Let's go through yours. Okay. Let's go through your proposals. Give let let's because because they do seem to be more realistic than some. So so why don't we spell them out as what we might do to actually what sure. we're trying to do is dispel the hi there the perception. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. 
it's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>